to piggyback off of what Joe mentioned, yes, please come join us if you haven't signed up for the retreat this uh, coming Sunday uh, to worship with us. Uh, it's not too far, as you mentioned, and stick around for lunch. Please do let uh, Betty know uh, so that we can have you join us for worship. And please do not come here, as he said, go to West Philly or any one of the nearby churches uh, for Sunday service. Also, I do want to uh, just give uh, an update regarding the uh, membership classes. Um, I don't think everyone knows kind of the purpose uh, behind it. Um, if you are a member here, uh, you know that it's not just a mutual benefit uh, that we are talking about here. It's not just you becoming a member and you receive goods and commodity and in return, we give back. Uh, but rather what being a member means is you saying that at this point, at this time in my life, I trust and believe that God has placed me in this body of believers so that I can be accountable, so that I can pray for these brothers and sisters and serve the church. If Christ has called you into relationship with himself, he also calls you into his body, the body that we see here. So if you've been attending our church and uh, you want the opportunity to take that step of commitment, uh, we invite you to sign up. The other group of people that it's for is for those who want to know just the basics of what we believe, of what we call Reformed theology. So even if you believe that it's not time for you to commit to being a member and you want to learn more about Scripture, about the doctrines of our faith, then please feel free to come and join us for that as well. So last week, we studied the, the principles for how to read the Old Testament law. And we saw that here in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing, he's, he's elaborating the deeper meanings behind the Old Testament law. So previously, he expounded on that sixth commandment that talks about murder and how it's more than the physical act of killing, but the hatred that we harbor inside, that is also sin and that is also contempt. And now a couple weeks ago, we also learned that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to be Christians living in this world as salt and light. And what salt and light means is that we are to shine the light of Christ's love in the, in the darkest places in people's lives, and even in all spheres, all aspects, all different places of society. But now to be salt, we study that we also have to give a biting message, an offensive message at times a message that the world does not like. And so if you've been wondering, as people have been asking me, how does this salt or this biting message come about? What kind of message are we talking about? And today is going to be a prime, perfect example of how what Christians believe regarding sexual ethics will be very biting to most people outside of this church, outside in the world, of what God prescribes and what uh, uh, sexual uh, ethics is. That itself will be very biting. So if you're looking for a way to be salt, sit down with somebody from work or school and say, hey, can I share with you what the Bible says about sex? And then you have a great way to talk about who God is. And I'm sure you have a long conversation. So here we go, talking about how we can be salt and light and how we can talk about these Old Testament passages. Now, this topic of sex and lust, it always presents itself uh, in different ways, polarizing ways, especially if you grew up uh, in a Christian environment, for example. 
for myself growing up in the church, I didn't know too much about how to think about sex. On one hand, at church, I got the impression that that whatever sex was, even though I never got a clear explanation, whatever it was, it's, it's something that you need to avoid. Just run away from it. It's the plague. And that was the message that I got growing up at church. But at the very same time, you can go to school and get a completely different message where sex is not something you run away from, but something that you need to enjoy to, to find who you are sexually, to be able to enjoy the benefits of sex with, with different partners. So it wasn't a plague, but it was something that benefits our desire, our gratification, and, and go and, and find yourself. And that's the kind of education that I got. Whereas on Sunday, I would get this very polarizing message of run away and on Monday, I would go to school, and they would be handing out contraceptives to, to go out and, and enjoy as much sex as you can. Now, as opposite of uh, these uh, two, uh, this end of the spectrum as they might seem, talking about the, the prudish view that certain Christians might have, and this open, engaging view that, that the rest of the world might have, believe it or not, both of them are guilty of the same thing. And that is not seeing the value of sex for what it truly is as God's gift. As I grew up, I saw how the church undervalued sex, thinking that it was a a necessary evil, something that you just had to do to procreate and, and create families. And they shied away from it. And on the other extreme, I saw how the world undervalued it, thinking that sex was something to be done with whomever, whenever, however, as long as it benefited yourself. But in either views, the underlying issue is you have too low of a view of sex. And hopefully from this passage, we can actually do away with those two extremes and and get a, a biblical framework, a basic framework of how we are to view sex, its intent, its uses, and especially its misuses, as we see here. And it's only four verses, uh, but there's a lot here. We can't talk about everything, but at least we can give a basic framework. So not only what Jesus is saying about sex and, and lust and adultery, but there's also a view that he has on marriage and on sexual intimacy that we're going to talk about this morning. So if you're new today, you came at a, a very unique time, uh, if you're visiting uh, if you're uh, bringing a friend who's not a believer and you're here, um, you picked a prime time to learn about what we believe about certain things in the world. So we're excited and we're glad you're here. So three topics for today. Number one, what Jesus is speaking against. What is he speaking against in this sermon? And number two, what Jesus is promoting. What is he positively promoting? So the negative, the positive, and finally, what does he want us to do? what Jesus wants us to do. So what he's speaking against, what he's speaking for, and finally, what Jesus wants us to do. So that's our plan. So let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, we do know that all of your scripture is God-breathed, that it's beneficial for teaching, for reproving, for rebuke, for edifying our lives. And even this passage this morning, we know that it is meant for our good, our holiness, for us to be more like you. So we do pray, even as we talk about this topic, we do pray for all of those, every one of us in this room who struggle with it in various ways. 
May we never think that we're alone in this struggle. We pray for those, those who have difficulty listening to these type of things because of the shame and guilt that might be harbored in people's hearts. We pray for your liberation in the gospel. And we do pray, Lord, for your spirit's help so that we can live the way that you want us to do in this area of sexuality, especially when the voice outside is so strong. We do pray for your help. We pray for your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, what Jesus is speaking against. Now, this is one of the passages where where non-Christians and Christians both, they'll point and say, see, the Bible has a negative view of sex. Look at the way that Jesus talks about it. And if you quickly read through it, it might seem like Jesus is saying sexual attraction is bad. And you need to avoid it at all costs. You need to cut off your hand. You need to gouge out your right eye. And it seems like that's what Jesus is saying, but that's not what he's saying here. And to that first, I'm going to respond by saying, have you read the rest of the Bible when you think that God believes that sex is a bad, negative thing? I mean, right from the get-go in Genesis, you see that God creates man And when he creates Adam, what does he say? He doesn't say that it's good because it's not good yet. But yet, when Adam first gets a wife, he finds and sees Eve. What are the first words that come out of his mouth? The first human words ever recorded in all of history. What is it? He sees Eve and he says, at last, finally. And think with me, without being too graphic, you have a male in the world, by himself, very lonely, created with these desires that God himself gave, and he looks around and has nobody, and then guess what? God creates the perfect companion, and they're facing each other naked. It's romantic. It's in a garden, just the two of them, and what does he say? At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. How sexual can you be, right? So right from the get-go, we Trace it throughout Old Testament, even a whole book dedicated to sexual intimacy in the Song of Songs. A lot of people think it's about music. It's not about music. It's a song of sexual intimacy. Now people are like, where is this book? I didn't know, right? But this whole book is about sexual intimacy, promoting it between two lovers. And if I read some portions of that book right now, all of you would not try to have this eye contact with me. You would avoid my look because it would make all of us blush. In fact, the way that it is translated in English, the way that translators do it, they soften the language. They make it very poetic when in actuality, some of these words, they are as crude and as blunt and as direct as you can get regarding parts of the body, regarding certain sexual acts, I'll, I'll read a, a certain watered-down version of it, okay? Here's songs, so Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. You can tell that the translators had a little bit of a poetic influence in this, but in actuality, all of those things are talking about actual parts of the body, actual acts. I'll leave it to you to think about what, actually don't think about it, let's focus on here. But 
The point is, there is such a deep, non-prudish view of sexuality even in Scripture. Even in the New Testament, Paul says, husband and wives do not deprive one another in the marriage bed because he promotes healthy sex and sexual attraction between the two. So then, if Jesus is not speaking against sex or, or sexual attraction, what is he speaking against? And here are just four quick things that he's condemning here. Number one, he's speaking against lustful desire. Lustful desire. Look at our passage a little bit more closely. What he's condemning is not sexual attraction, but what he's saying is that if an attraction evolves into covetous desire, that's when you've committed adultery. Look at verse 28. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that's the key word, lustful intent, that's actually one word, lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that word, it means longing. It means to covet. It's not lustful action. Jesus doesn't say commit an action, but even having the intent for it. And he's condemning that kind of desire. That same word is used in other parts of Scripture. James chapter 4, you desire, same word, you desire, you have a lustful intent for things, and you do not have, therefore you murder you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and, and quarrel. So it's this longing, this desire for something or for someone that should not be yours. It means to, what, linger over something or someone that you know that you should not be lingering over or desiring. So Jesus is not condemning attraction or, or sexual attraction in and of themselves. But what he is condemning is as a result of that, you let your heart linger you let your desires brew. You covet that person for yourself when you should not be. Because attraction, it's not a bad thing. We can appreciate beauty. We can appreciate it if, if someone is very handsome or someone is very beautiful. In fact, you can even praise God and say, wow, God, you did a great job with that person. Hallelujah. Right? What a beautiful creature. Don't ever say that to that person. You can think it. You never put creature in a compliment in one sentence. That's my tip. So you can acknowledge beauty in people, and you can even praise God for it. But when that appreciation and attraction becomes covetous, and there is a lustful intent, that's when Jesus says it becomes sinful. Because we see beauty and appreciation in all of God's creation from art to music, even in people, whether it be physical or, or their actions, their personality. But when it becomes sinful is when that appreciation changes form to desire and to longing. That longing leads to imagination and then to fantasies and if not constrained, even to action. And it is when we allow ourselves to dive deeper and deeper and into longing with that person and that person's not your spouse, that's what Jesus is condemning. One commentator writes, the look is not casual, but persistent. The desire is not involuntary, or nor is it momentary, but it is a cherished desire. It's a perpetual desire. So there is a difference between appreciation and, and attraction and sexual attraction. 
versus lustful intent that comes out of that, especially if that person is not your spouse. And it's the latter that Jesus is speaking against. Martin Luther says, we can't stop birds from flying above us, but we can stop them from building their nests in our hair. And so when these attractions come, sometimes we can't help the people we run into, but we can prevent the building of the nest, of letting these desires grow into lustful intent. So he's speaking against lustful intent. Secondly, he's speaking against this false idea that adultery is only in the act of committing adultery, not the heart. He's speaking against that. He's saying, no, adultery is not just the act, but it's also in the heart. Because by the time you develop the longing for that person who does not belong to you, you've already committed adultery. Look at the language he uses in verse 28. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, look at the way that he, he phrases it, has already committed adultery in his heart. Has already committed. That's what? A, a, a present perfect verb, meaning completed. You have already committed adultery before the action even happened. It does a great job translating that because that means in God's eyes, the act and sin of adultery, it hasn't been committed when you act, but when you actually start that desire in your heart. That's what Jesus is speaking against. The third thing he's speaking against is, is this dehumanizing of the next person, of this opposite gender. Now, the situation that Jesus is describing here, you can see there's no interaction between this man and this woman. And it, and it represents just how the world views a lot of the times the opposite gender because what's happening here happens exactly in the world of, of pornography, of TV, of movies, because here there is no interaction between the two other than the fact that this man, he sees her, he wants her for some sexual benefit, and what this does is, like pornography, it dehumanizes the other person. You don't see the other person as uh, 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 someone made in God's image, as an actual person, but you start to see people regarding on what they can give you, what kind of benefit they can provide for you, and that takes away the humanness from the services or the benefits they can provide. And that, by definition, is dehumanizing. Listen to C.S. Lewis on this. If there is a lustful man prowling the streets and he wants a woman, he says, strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. It's not a woman that he wants. What he wants is pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus to provide that pleasure. Do you see the distinction it's not the person that this man wants. It's the experience and the pleasure that this woman happens to be the tool to give to him. And he says, and he's very blunt here, you can see how much this man cares about that woman by looking at his attitude even five minutes after sexual intimacy. He says, one does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. This kind of lust, this kind of adultery, this is what dehumanizes people. And the fourth thing Jesus is condemning is that the idea that lust, sexual uh, uh, lust is innocent. And he's saying it's very not innocent. In verse 29, he makes that shocking statement, doesn't he? 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better to lose one of your members than your whole body and to be thrown into hell. Same with your right hand. Now, one of the loudest claims that culture makes about sex is that it's just one of the many physiological needs that we have. And therefore, just like our appetite for food, we need to satisfy our appetite for sex. And so what do they do? They promote sexuality and encourage it apart from God's original intent. So what happens as a result? We end up seeing the people of the opposite gender the same way that we see a commodity of what we can get, not as a gift from God, but a commodity that we need to get, just like we go to the grocery store. What can this person give me? What can this person bring me? I just need to satisfy my physiological, biological desires. And the world boldly claims that sexual desire is just a physical need, that it's innocent, but that there's nothing damning about lust nor its expressions through, through pornography because it is innocent, and that's the claim. They say it doesn't hurt anyone. As long as lust just stays in your room, as long as it stays in your mind, it never wreaks havoc, as long as it stays in your private sphere. But how far from the truth that is. Because what pornography does is it makes you buy into this narrative of how sex is supposed to be. As you look at these images, as you look at these videos, you're buying into a narrative of what sexual intimacy is to be like. And you have these unrealistic expectations for your actual sexual relationship with your spouse. And as soon as you put those expectations upon your spouse or your partner, and bring it into the marriage bed, it wreaks havoc. It wreaks havoc in you, psychologically, physically even, studies have shown, emotionally. And not only does it wreak havoc in your own life, but it wreaks havoc in your relationship. Because what happens is, you put these unrealistic expectations of how attractive that they have to be, how well they need to perform sexually upon someone else, and they're unrealistic. And there's been multiple studies and articles that talk about all the detrimental effects of pornography, pornography because you carry those ideas of sex into your own marriage bed, and it does wreak havoc. Jesus is saying lust is never innocent. If it was innocent, why would Jesus use such strong language? Why is he saying that your whole body will be thrown into hell? It's because sexual sin, it's not a pet that you can tame. It's going to continually try to grow until it finally kills you spiritually. It is never static. It never stays in your room. It never stays in your mind or your head. But it's always seeking the next thrill, the bigger thrill. Because whatever passing thrill you get, it numbs you for a bit. And then after a while, the people you see on the screen, they don't seem like people anymore, and you look for the next bigger thrill. Listen to one study that writes this. Like any potentially addictive substance, pornography triggers the release of dopamine into a part of the brain called the reward center. And basically, this reward center's job is to, is to make you feel good whenever you, you do something healthy, like eating a great meal, getting a good workout, and even here, having sex. 
And this high that you get, it makes you want to repeat that behavior again and again. But what pornography does is it escalates that behavior. Because as some users develop a tolerance for it, the pornography that used to excite them, it starts to get, what, boring. And what happens next? Images become videos. Videos become more extreme. And that becomes manifested in actions and so forth. It is not static. It is on the move, and it is out to kill you. David's story is a perfect example of how he saw Bathsheba. He first saw the attraction. Then he lingered. Then he lustfully intended to be with her. And then he let that take fruition into action, having an illicit affair with her. And not only does he have that, uh, uh, commit that act of adultery? What does he do? It keeps growing. He murders her husband. It never stays. That's why Jesus is saying lust is never innocent. You have to see it for what it is. Proverbs chapter 6, he who commits adultery lacks sense, for he does it and destroys himself. It destroys us. And lust has been compared to, I love how one commentator puts it, lust is like a cannibal committing suicide by nibbling on himself. And it destroys others along the way as well. So at this point, you might be thinking, okay, sex does not sound like it's good. <laughs> That's what you've been trying to argue. At this point, we talked about all the negative effects of sin. So how can sex be a good thing? Well, that's what I'm going to try to show you next. The second point, what Jesus is promoting, what Jesus is promoting. So we saw the four things that he's condemning, but now he's, he's going to talk about what sex is meant to be. This is what he infers and assumes. Sex is a gift that God has given us, but like any gift, it comes with instructions. Like any gift, to be fully enjoyed, you need to follow its instructions. For example, if you receive the gift of, of a potentially dangerous tool, a power drill, or an electric chainsaw, you better know how to use that tool. If not, that you will not be able to succeed in the task that it was designed to do. But furthermore, you might even hurt yourself. And it's very dangerous to try to appreciate a gift apart from its instructions. So when does sex and, and physical intimacy as gifts become fully expressed? And they're expressed when they're performed within the boundaries of a covenant. The boundaries of a covenant. Now this idea, this thinking fly, flies directly into the face of this world. Because the world views sex and views anything that we want to not have any boundaries, to be free, to, to go after it with all of your heart. Let nothing stop you. If that's something you want, you go get it. And that flies in the face of the world. But here we see that sex is a gift and it's best expressed, best enjoyed within the boundaries of covenant. For example, if I want to be free if I want to be free to express the most beautiful piano sonata that you've ever heard, and I want to make all of you cry from the way that I phrase my music, the way that I pay attention to the dynamics, and I want to go there right now and I play that sonata for you, 
as free as I can? What needs to happen? I need to limit myself for about eight months to practice every day, and I need to have certain boundaries where I'm studying the music, when I'm practicing, when I'm training myself, and having those set boundaries allows for me to fully express the beauty of that piece later on. Do you see how it is a necessity to have certain limitations so that it can be expressed in its full later? Another example, take a fish. Say that a fish wants to be free, saying, I'm tired of living in water. I want to be free and just walk. And you put it on the ground. What's it going to do? It's going to die, right? Because the way that God designed it for that fish to be most free is to be in the limitation of water. Likewise, if he wants us to be most free and express the fullness of sex, he wants it within the boundaries of our water, which is covenant obligation, covenant relationship between man and wife. Another example, take the example of water. The powerful flow of water that comes downstream, only when it's directed and guided by irrigation and, and, and a dam system, then you can have this powerful and constant stream of water. But when you take those things out, what happens? The water spreads. You make these swampy marshes, right? And you can't get the full effect of water. Take sex and physical intimacy, and you try to express that, and you try to enjoy that, apart from the boundaries that God has given us, then it will lead into these swampy marshes. It will be messy, it will bring pain, and we will hurt ourselves in the process. So let's talk about what these boundaries are. When we think about what a covenant is, it's a binding agreement. It's used in the ancient times between, you guys are thinking, wow, he's using ancient history to talk about sexual relationship, but bear with me. In the ancient times, two nations, they would have a covenant saying things like, I'm going to provide you with this and that, and in return, you will provide me with military protection. And underneath that covenant was this idea of exclusivity, just you and me. We, only the two of us are in this covenant, no one else. And there is this idea of commitment, and that's what we are talking about. In the same way, God established a covenant with his people. The famous line is, I will be your God, you will be my people. Do you see the commitment there, the exclusivity between just God and his people? people, no one else. And once that commitment is established, can you enjoy the benefits of the covenant? Now, you might hear all this and say, wow, it's all very legal. It sounds like this strict language. How romantic can this be? How freeing can this be? And let me explain. One of the most crippling things about relationships is when the health and the intimacy of that relationship depends on the performance of the other person. When it depends on how well the other uh, person acts or performs. It is when your commitment to that person, your kindness, your love, and your care for that person, it will only exist if that person gives you something that you want first. And he or she needs to perform, needs to be a certain way 
for you, needs to dress a certain way, needs to be good with kids, needs to make a certain amount of money, needs to be attractive. And only when those stipulations are satisfied, then I will give you my commitment. And it is an act of consumerism. You do this for me, and I will give you my commitment in return. And when that kind of relationship goes on, it is crippling and it is damaging. Because what happens, two things happen. The first scenario is this. Your partner was constantly under this microscope, constantly feeling like they're on this audition platform of how he or she is trying to measure up to your expectations and your standards. And that person, he or she will constantly live in anxiety. Am I good enough? Am I meeting the quota? Am I fulfilling his or her expectations? And as a result, they can never be their true self. They always try to be who the other person wants me to be, but they can never be who they really are because they have this constant fear that their true self is not acceptable, it's not lovable, it's not liked. So rather, they try very hard to be the person that you want them to be. And only then will you give them commitment and love and sexual intimacy. But do you see how antithetical this is to the gospel? saying things that only when you give me this, then I will give you my commitment. Do you see how in the gospel it says, on contrary, God's love for you is not based on what you do. It's not even based on who you are. It's based on who he is. And that's why, for example, cohabitation doesn't work. When you try to live together before marriage to see it as a try around, to see how well you are. Incompatibility. And if things go well, then let's take the next step of marriage. It's like a test run. But the problem is, both of you know that any given time, that you always have the option of backing out. And with that possibility always looming in the other person's mind, you can never be your true self. You're, the whole concept is built upon the idea of, of living up to a certain expectation. And if there ever comes a day someone else comes along, someone who you think can fulfill your expectations far greater than this person, then you can easily back out. And so the person will constantly live in fear, anxiety, being crippled under this expectation, the weight that he or she cannot bear. The other scenario that can happen, let's say that your partner, he or she, she does succeed and, and fulfill all of her expectations. Let's say that he ends up being that perfect boyfriend or that perfect husband that you could ever desire or that perfect wife that you've been wanting all along. And if that person checks off all of your expectations with flying colors, then what ends up happening is you end up idolizing that person. You try to think that he or she is going to be your God. That person becomes more important to you than anything else or anyone else in the world, more than yourself, more than God. And you will end up crumbling under pressure of trying to hold on to that person, trying to make them the God that they were never supposed to be. But whichever scenario that you end up being, the end goal that you have in mind is that other person serves me. 
You're not for the relationship. You are for yourself. It's about yourself. And all the questions end up leading to whether or not this person is giving you what you want. Whereas in a covenant, all the questions end up leading of how you can put the relationship before yourself. Now, how is this commitment that comes from covenant, how does that provide freedom? Well, if that commitment is there first, it's established. The other person can never back out. It's exclusive. That means you can be your true self and never be afraid if that person is going to back out. It's exclusive. It means that you can be finally be vulnerable to the other person without the fear of being rejected. Why? Because that exclusive commitment has already been established. No matter what I do, how I end up, how I turn out, this person is committed to me. And once you have that safety net, you can be your true self. You're not performing anymore. You're not trying to be or live out a certain expectation. For example, all the time, my wife gets frustrated that a lot of people at church, they compliment me in many ways. Oh, he's so gentle and kind and very calm. And many times at home, she's always like, I wish they knew just how goofy you were at home. The kind of dances you do, the kind of noises you make, the way that you sing. Only they saw a glimpse of that. And I say, I'm vulnerable to you. This is our marriage relationship. This is a benefit that only you can have. Why can I do that? Because I know that no matter how stupid I look, that she will be with me. Whereas if I do that in front of you, you can walk out right now. I'm afraid of that. Therefore, I will act a certain way. If the commitment is already established, you have ultimate freedom. You can be yourself. You can be vulnerable. You can cry and weep into the arms of another person, knowing that no matter how weak you look, that person is going to be by your side. Only in a covenant relationship can you be that, knowing for sure that this is an exclusive relationship between you and me. And only when sex is expressed under these boundaries, it's going to be expressed to the full. Tim Keller says, that sex outside the boundaries of a covenant, it ends up being a consumer relationship. And a consumer relationship says, you adjust to me or I'm out of this relationship. Whereas the covenant relationship says, I'm going to adjust to you because I'm committed to this relationship. The consumer relationship says, my needs are more important than this relationship. A covenant relationship says, the relationship is more important than my needs. Do you see how antithetical those two are? Sex, intimacy, within the bounds of covenant obligation. And when two people come under that boundary, it becomes beautiful. They can be a vulnerable they can be themselves. They can fully express who they are. And it's unimaginable freedom to finally be who you are. And then you can finally build your relationship based off who you truly are rather than who you try to be. There are many times where couples, they come back after years and say, I don't even know who you are. Why? Because they've been living in performance, being a certain kind of wife, being a certain kind of husband. And after so many years, you ask the question, do I even know you? Therefore, 
sex expressed at its fullest within the bounds of a covenant relationship. Because then even sex doesn't become about performance. The point of sex does not become about how the other person makes you feel. Because as soon as sex becomes that, it goes back to consumerism. But when sex is enjoyed within the boundaries of a covenant, you can finally enjoy it as a gift, not a platform on which you will be assessed or interviewed or have to perform or or be a certain way in order to love that person's love and commitment. But on the other hand, sex becomes a way that you can provide joy to the other person, a way that you can provide pleasure to the other person, not be about you. You're more concerned about the other person rather than your own even sexual gratification. Listen to one pastor. He says, here's what true love is. What true love seeks is not the delight of being loved or even the thrill of loving, but true love is bringing delight to the beloved. That is true love. And at the core, that is what sexual intimacy is. True love does not center on my gratification of sexual passion, but in bringing delight to another and cherishing another in outgoing devotion, he says. And you can only have that in covenant. And this kind of true love in sex, that means, believe it or not, the sexual act itself, that's not the basis on which you build your relationship. The physical intimacy, the attraction, that's going to provide the foundation of our relationship. It does not allow that to happen in a covenant relationship. This kind of true love, this kind of physical intimacy, what God is talking about, it gets expressed because of the commitment and oneness that you already have. Instead of trying to use it to establish oneness, sex is an expression of the oneness that you already have with the person spiritually, emotionally, relationally, even financially being obligated, familial commitment. All of those unions already take place. And as a result of all of that union, I will also express that union through physical intimacy. That's how... Marriage in God's eyes and sexual intimacy between husband and wife, it can get better over time. Why? Because as your relationship gets deeper spiritually, emotionally, relationally, what happens? The physical expresses what's already there. The deepening of your spiritual, emotional, relational connection. But if that is not there and you try to force sex to be what it's not, it wreaks havoc. That's why two people can grow too old together and have a better sex life as they deepen their relationship with one another because their physical intimacy expresses what's already being established. That's what a covenant union is. Finally, let's be more practical now. What Jesus wants us to do. So with all this, how does Jesus want us to live? And there's a lot of things we can say here, but I just want to be uh, very basic here and provide two things. The first is thinking about what we need to do. The second, uh, what we need to believe. So more deeply embedded. So let's see what Jesus is saying. In verse 29, he gives that extreme statement. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body. And he says the same thing with your right hand. Now, he can't really mean that we're to mutilate our body parts because if he did, it wouldn't make sense. Say that there was a guy who lustfully looked at another woman and he wants to take this literally, he wants to gouge out his right eye. Somebody's going to have to tell him, hey, I think your left eye looked just as badly as your right eye. You might have to take out both eyes. You can see Jesus is not being literal here, right? I don't know if anyone can look at one thing with one eye. and I know some people can do that, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not being literal. He's being hyper, hyperbolic, meaning being extreme, to communicate this idea that if there is this sexual sin in your life, you need to take drastic action. You need to do what it takes. You need to take it in drastic measures, and you need to have that in place against sexual sin. And we see that all throughout Scripture. Sexual sin, brothers and sisters, is not something that we can mess around with. It's not something that you can tame. It's different from the other pleasures and temptations in this world. That's why Paul writes to Timothy as a young pastor, flee from these desires. Don't try to fight it. Don't try to overcome it all the time. Flee if you need to. Same thing with the Joseph and the Potiphar's wife. What did he do? He knew that he could not stand strong against the incoming attacks of seduction, so he knows himself and he runs away. So take drastic action. Sexual sin will never be kept at bay. It will never be tamed. It is out to kill you, so do what it takes. Stop watching those shows. Disconnect that Instagram account. Stop going to the gym at that time of day where you know that you are most susceptible to being tempted. Go at 5 a.m. when I think there's like three people there, and one of them's Joe, maybe. Go when you know that you will not be tempted. Do and take drastic measures if you are serious about how much sin can destroy you. If I told you today that you have cancer, and in order for you to live, that you need to stop eating this or stop doing that, you will definitely stop. But I'm saying the same thing with sin. It's going to kill you spiritually. What's the matter? What's the problem? We don't really believe that it's going to kill us. Maybe that's where we need to first start. Do you actually believe that this sin, it's going to grow? It's going to keep entering into your life. For you single folks, it comes into your marriage. And it not only hurts you, it hurts your husband, it hurts your wife, it hurts your family. It will never stop. So take drastic measure. James chapter 1, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by its own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. That's why Jesus says it can lead you to hell. Earlier I said sex Within the bounds of covenant marriage, it's the, it's the expression of the reality that already exists, this union that you already have. If sex in covenant relationship is that, the opposite, illegitimate sexual interaction, lustful intent, that also is an expression of what's inside of you. And what's inside of you is you believing that that gratification, that's what I need to be happy. That person, that image, I need that for me to be truly 
happy. It's an expression of what's already inside of you. Just as physical intimacy between man and wife is an expression of what's inside of them, sexual, illicit sexual activity is an expression of what's inside of you. And it's this false notion, this belief that you need that gratification. You need that image. I need that so that I can be happy. And that is a lie. Even sex and union between husband and wife, it points towards the relationship between God and his people. The intimacy between the two, it's a small taste of the deepest satisfactions that will be fulfilled and is fulfilled in our heavenly bridegroom, Jesus. That's why there's no marriage in heaven, believe it or not. Because marriage in itself, sex in itself, it points to a greater reality, this deep longing and satisfaction that's already been given in Christ. And we're going to have the fullness of that. So we have that. There's no need for marriage, no need for sex. But an idolatrous desire to say, I need that to make me happy, you're not content in Jesus. You don't believe that Jesus is all you need and all you really want. When Jesus is talking about this seventh commandment, he's also talking about that tenth commandment where it says, do not covet. And what's at the heart of coveting? It's wanting something that's not yours. It's having this expectation that you deserve something that's not yours. And you are telling God, God, you messed up. God, I need this in my life right now. You haven't given it to me, so I will do what it takes. I will go to those sites. I will look at this person, and I will get what I think I deserve. At the core of it, it's rebellion against God, saying, God, you messed up. You're not giving me contentment. And it's idolatrous. And it's us believing this false idea that I need that thing or I need that person to be truly happy. Even acts done out of lust, whether it be pornography or even as that leads to masturbation. What is it? It's a belief that this feeling, this act of gratification is what I really need now. That's what you believe. But pornography never gives you what it actually says it will give you. It gives you images and cheap versions of what? Stress relief, ecstasy, instant gratification. It gives you a cheap imitation of feeling loved and treasured in this imaginary world, but at the core of it, it's idolatry. Imagining a relationship with someone that does not belong to you, who's not your spouse, what is it? It's a way of escaping the stresses of life, isn't it? It's you satisfying your longings, just asking the question, what if I was with that person? What would life be then? I would be loved. I would be treasured. At the core of it, in idolatry, you're saying, I'm not content in what God has given me. So both is needed. Drastic action and a complete 180-degree turn in what you believe you need. And I'll end with this example. You know, one of the common struggles that a lot of the male students at RCF asked me at West Philly was this advice of pornography and how to fight and how to struggle against it. There have been many, many, many multiple times where I'm sitting across a student, and you can just tell just how much frustration and anger and shame and, and even hopelessness there is on that brother's face. 
And all of these feelings converge together right after failure. And usually they're asking me, what do I need to do to stop? Help me. And I see the desperate look on their faces. And, you know, we heed the drastic command of Jesus saying, gouge out the right eye. Okay, let's talk about what drastic measures need to take place. And so we brainstorm. We talk about all the things that we could do, setting up a system where at a certain time of night, one of the brothers will call him avoiding this area on campus. And we're coming up with all of these things, cutting out certain shows. But doing those things by themselves, it never works. It never succeeds. Why? Because his fundamental belief hasn't changed. Both needs to happen. Drastic action and a deep desire, deep belief that that's not what I need to be happy. I already have Christ. As Augustine says, someone who struggled with sexual sin all his life, he says, our hearts are restless until they find its rest in you. In the past, when I go on these short-term mission trips and some of these brothers go with me to these one-month or even two-month mission trips, and the guys on the trip, they would always be surprised just how on the trip they don't struggle with lust. It's not as big of a problem as it used to be back at home. So they have this mystical idea of missions, that when you go there, you turn holy, and you become like a saint. And to that, I just tell them, every day on missions, I wake you up at 6 a.m., and I say, read the Bible. And you read the Bible for 20 minutes. Then we get together, and we sing praise songs for about 15 minutes. And then we pray for the people we're going to meet. And then you have breakfast with other brothers and sisters talking about ministry. Then you go to class to learn language so that you can minister to the people. And then you come out with activities. And then you go outreach. And then you do praise. I hope you didn't have time to think about some of these things. And you know what the conclusion is? They've been so much filling their hearts and their minds with Christ. There's no room for lesser desires. And the amount of liberation that they sensed, that once you start filling yourself with the longings that God wants to give and satisfy you, and once you find that satisfaction in Christ day in and day out, you will have no more need for those lesser desires. If I went to New York and had a personally tailored omakase sushi meal given to me, and I had that great meal, somebody comes at me with a, McDonald's filet o fish I will not be hungry for that filet o fish We are eating a lot of filet o fish sandwiches because we're not eating sushi That's a analogy I guess <laughs> Never heard that before but if we eat more sushi we can be sexually pure Okay <laughs> But do you see how this is what Jesus is talking about Yes take drastic action but there needs to be a fundamental change in what you believe. So practically, the next time you see that temptation, before you think about what you need to do, ask yourself, what do I believe? Do I actually believe that this gratification is what makes me happy? You think about your past, of how shameful you felt, the guilt that it brings. And you think, and do I really believe that I am content in Christ? You challenge that, you pray through that. You ask for God's help to change that. And then you take drastic action. And you might not be perfect all the time, but I sincerely believe through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will find victory. 
And when you do fail, go back to the covenant. Because the covenant says, no matter how many times you fail, no matter how much sexual baggage you come with, Jesus is committed to you, not because of your performance, not because of how pure you are, but because he made a covenant with you. And he even knew all of the sexual sins that might happen in your life. And yet he says, I choose you. Fall back on that and see if that image is enticing. If there's a desire that God satisfied, we won't look anywhere else. Let's pray. I want to give us some time just to pray over these topics. And I know for some, it's a very heavy topic. It's a topic that all of us struggle with in different forms. So let's take this time. Whatever God is placing on your heart, is there something that you need to lift up to God and say, God, forgive me? Perhaps for some of us, it's not even the act of sexual sin, but perhaps you've gotten comfortable with it, thinking, this is just how I'm supposed to live. Maybe at best I can tame it, but as we said, it can never be tamed. Perhaps for some of us, we need to pray, God, help me to fight again. Because the signs of you fighting, that in itself is a sign that God is working in you. Maybe that's where we need to start. Let's pray and ask for his help.